you thought you were out, we pull you back in. This is And Justice for Al, brought to you by InRealDeep.com. I'm Steve Cimino, senior writer at InRealDeep.com, and with us, as always, executive editor Andrew Johnson. Hello, Andrew. How's it going? Hey, welcome back, buddy. We're back for another Al Pacino episode. You must be so excited. <laughs> I was going to shout my dicks on fire, but I didn't think that was appropriate. I kind of said it out now, but oh well. <laughs> Well, I'm happy, and my thing is not on fire, and part of the reason I'm so overjoyed is that, and also the fact that Tom is not with us. Tom, survival, oh. chief foil, the yin to my yang, I guess, if we are two sides of the same coin, cannot join us for this episode, but that's actually a good thing, I think, though, no he's, offense, I love Tom with all my heart. He's the, Ste- he's the Steve from the Upside Down. <laughs> that's right, he's, he's evil Steve, yeah. or good Steve, depending yeah. on what movie we're talking about. Yeah. We have a very special guest this time who is joining us to talk Al Pacino, a guest with more credibility than Tom has, at least on the topic (laughs) of Mr. Pacino. That's Nick Forster. Nick, say hello. Hi, everyone. Thanks for for letting me join. I'm really excited to be here. Gosh, Nick, it's our our pleasure. You reached out to us and you asked to be a guest on this podcast, which is unprecedented in a good way (laughs) because we haven't had A, proves people are listening, and B, it reinforces that we Al Pacino fans like yourself find something of value on our podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, there's there's nothing better than randomly emailing someone and, and inviting yourself onto a podcast. So thank you, guys. <laughs> our, our SEO play for Al Pacino podcast finally paid off, Steve. Finally, <laughs> finally paid off. Tell <laughs> everybody um, your background with Mr. Pacino, because we didn't just have you on as a fan. We had you on as a bit of a scholar on the topic. So... Yeah, so I'm I'm a PhD candidate in uh, African American Studies and Film and Media Studies at Yale, but recently I published a piece with the Village Voice called Al Pacino Truth Seeker um, that looks at my sort of long-standing relationship with Al Pacino, who is my first favorite actor, and uh, tried to sort of trace the really complicated history that he's had as he went from a sort of method darling to more of a punchline in the last decade or so. Mm. Sounds like the arc of our our podcast, but with much more academic rigor applied to it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Nick, how did you get into it? What, what was the process like? Did you submit to them? Did you contact them? Like, how does that typically work to get a story like that? Uh, and was it timely? Also, based on the fact that Paterno is coming out, like, what's the backstory of that? So it's a, a bit of a funny story. I had uh, I watched Pacino's most recent film, Hangman, and I had a lot of uh, emotions. Uh, and those emotions were primarily driven by watching this not great film with this great actor kind of doing very weird, making very weird and unique choices throughout. And so I wrote this piece before anything really happened. And, uh, I was submitting it and eventually I was just submitting it to a bunch of journals and eventually someone got back to me, uh, Bilga Beery, who's a great writer at The Voice yeah. and said, Hey, uh, you know, there's going to be a Pacino retrospective in a couple months. If you want to rework this, you know, shorten it and focus more on uh, maybe some of Pacino's earlier works, we'd be interested. And so uh, so that's what I did, because there's a whole lot in the piece about the the latter half of Pacino's career that I didn't get into, despite that also being uh, important to me, but in much different ways. I'm just happy to have someone on the podcast who says Al Pacino is important to them in any way. <laughs> different ways is a huge benefit. So. 
Uh, As you probably know, Nick, I get under siege on a lot of these episodes, and sometimes Andrew and Tom wear me down and, and force me to change my tune after by the end of the episode. And then the second I hang up, I go, wait a second, I don't feel that way at all. I don't know, what do they do to me? So I'm, I'm more weak-willed than I'd like to be, but I think this time you and I are going to we're gonna get through this together, so thank you. Oh, in no. advance. I'm the it's referee. I'm the referee, Steve. You know, sometimes you gotta call him like you see him. I, I have one more question, Nick. Are you in New Haven, Connecticut, right now? Uh, no. I, I recently, in the fall, moved to Staten Island, New York. Actually. Okay. I was asking because I uh, I was born there. I did not go to Yale, but I, I I was born in New Haven. So anyway, it's a great city. It's a uh, underrecognized, I think. Yeah, I don't. I never spent any time there. <laughs> <laughs> but but I I was born there, You're so forever it, late, though. It, it can't be all bad, I suppose. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right, well, let's get into it, Steve. Yeah, let's Take talk about away. the movie. Nick, you requested a very specific movie for us to cover. It's one I never thought we were going to cover on this podcast, but we were happy to fulfill your request. It was a little, we as you noted, it's nice to talk about a more modern Al. We definitely have done, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s mostly, but here we're doing 2003's The Recruits, which... I sort of regard as one of the last Al Pacino movies that people actively tried to see in theaters. One of the last times when he was like actually a box office draw and able to sell a movie on his own. Because after this, he sort of devolved into some uh, art house, uh, smaller stuff, and then some garbage that basically should have gone direct to video. So, Nick, why why did the recruit jump out at you? Something you wanted to talk about in the podcast? Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting pick. I mean, I thought originally I'd go with Serpico. That's the movie that was first really important to me. It was uh, the movie that I, I wrote about. But I saw The Recruit as a teenager in theaters, and uh, I remember not loving it, but I went back to see it. And I think that it's a film ju- made just after uh, 9-11 as Hollywood's beginning to tackle these kind of questions that the nation is facing. And it's uh, one of the last movies, I think, where Pacino's operating in a really uh, a sort of mid-key register. He's not hoo-hawing it as uh, as the bad Pacino, as folks who call him bad Pacino would say. Um, but he he also commands the film. Uh, I find it really interesting in part because the script to this movie is not great. It is so by the numbers, you know from essentially the second that you turn it on what the twist is going to be. And yet... There are such great scenes as you, as uh, both of you even signaled in the beginning when Al Pacino spills coffee on his pants <laughs> and exclaims that his dick is on fire. <laughs> oh man, my dick's on fire! <laughs> and it's, 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 it's also part of this, uh, A.O. Scott in his review in the New York Times described a genre, what he called a very special genre that I am fond of, which is the uh, Al Pacino crazy mentor picture. And, yeah. and you know, that yeah. includes Donnie Brasco, Devil's Advocate, yeah. Scent of a Woman. Yeah. And to me, this is the film that is the most explicit that for all of Pacino's career, he's often been playing roles where he tries to be a sort of surrogate father to someone. And here that is made clear as crystal. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, subtlety is not this movie's strength, and nor does it try to be. Like, it is very, as you said, it's, it's basically a three-hander. Like, it's basically Al Pacino, Colin Farrell, and Bridget Moynihan, and then Gabriel Mock is in the background a couple times. And beyond that, they're the only three characters. And for a movie that's, you know, ostensibly a, a spy thriller about who a mole is or who the bad guy may be undercover, 
it is not hard to. Re- I remember that's the one memory I have of this movie from seeing it in theaters was okay. It's clear there's a bad guy. You know it's not Farrell because he's your main guy. You're pretty sure it's not the girl because they're telling you it's the girl. So it's Al Pacino. <laughs> and as an adult now, it's pretty clear because if it's, if it's not Al Pacino, how does he get to do a 12 minute monologue at the end of the movie? He sure doesn't. So it just makes perfect sense that Al would end up being the bad guy. I also just love the way this, like, it's, I'm glad you brought up, like, the yelling Pacino, cause it's still, it still ends with that, you know? But it's kind of like, it's, it's much more satisfying to me to see that at the very end of the film, and, and as part of, like, the, again, obvious, but the twisty turny sort of, like, c- conclusion. Um, like, I was, I was really, I, I, I love that. Like, the thing I wrote down at the very end is, like, that this is a very, mo- this movie is very obvious, cliche, and yet, Pacino's performance really like elevates it beyond where it has any right to be basically based on all the other sort of like fundamentals like script and score and all that stuff. So, yeah, I was going to say, you know, I mean, so let's set the scene, right? The movie is, as you said, sort of a spy thrill. It's it's about Colin Farrell is this hotshot MIT grad who, uh, as we're introduced to the very opening credits, um, is a whiz with computers, right? So the credits come down and we see all these images of computers that are giving us information about the fact that his father, uh, is miss went missing in the early nineties, uh, in Peru. Um, and from there, they pretty much just press go and the movie runs off by itself. Colin Farrell is this brilliant guy. What happens? Of course, this older man, Pacino finds him at a bar and, uh, begins to recruit him through you know, sort of surreptitious ways that are not at all surreptitious, which include like tearing up a newspaper and then voila, it, it, it being put back together. <laughs> yeah, him, uh, tell, him telling him the most important thing you know is that you don't, that you should know is you don't know shit. That, that, that line. Yeah. Now, I mean, where else are you going to get such great advice as that? <laughs> he also circle in that scene. He also circles CIA in the middle of the word oh, special, yeah, yeah. sort of like as like a way to tell me CIA without saying it out loud, and then just proceeds to talk about the CIA openly right after that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess I guess he's being theatrical, so he's not. It doesn't have to be a secret. But I thought the implication was he does he you know though everyone's listening, he doesn't want to say where he works, and then just starts talking about it like it's no big deal. So I don't know if that's consistent exactly, but. But at least he didn't live a life that all started with, as Pacino says, one nasty martini. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But you something that's really interesting, too. And I think that this the movie feels like a 2003 movie in the sense that there is two lines that address 9-11. And one is just a call back to the original one. But they, it seems like they perhaps the script might have been written before that and then they were like oh we can't make a cia movie without talking about 9-11 so they make a quick reference to the fact that you know oh the cia those old white dudes who fell asleep at the switch and we needed them the most and then you know and then i think Pacino brings reference to that again at the end but that's really the only time they acknowledge the the faults or frailties of the intelligence community otherwise it's full as you said full steam ahead rah rah cia for most of the movie but if there's one prevailing sort of atmosphere or mood to this whole movie, it's kind of like paranoia, right? Yeah. And uh, nothing is as it seems, as they say. You can't trust anyone but yourself. All of these sort of uh, hand-waving claims that, that disguise themselves as being uh, really poignant or profound, but are in fact kind of just just sort of indoctrinating you to be paranoid. Um, and so that that, to me, resonates as something 
extremely uh, post 9-11 as Hollywood trying to reckon with the state of war that is not actually yet a declared war. Um, and and I, I also think there's something I don't want to necessarily jump too far ahead, but we talked about that last scene. So we see Pacino early on, right? Circling CIA and what is some great visual storytelling, which is then obviously undercut. Um, but then the, at the end, we, his, this monologue, which goes on is fundamentally about him being made obsolete and that he's made obsolete by the rise of like professionalization and Ivy league educated kids who come in and take his job. And so his years of experience don't matter. And I guess for now, for me watching that now as well, it's really hard not to see that and think like about the conversations that are going on about automation and what it means to put in time and to not have your career recognized in any way. And so I think it, it th- that's another thing I find interesting about the film is that it still registers both as such a relic of its time and it's also saying something or engaging with these kind of contemporary conversations that are going on in 2018. Yeah, I agree. The irony, of course, in criticizing the CIA for having Ivy League people is that it always has had them. But um, uh, but Hollywood has never done CIA right. They've always pretended it's some sort of... Um, well, I mean, I, 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 I give it credit, actually. It does kind of send up... Like, I wrote down in my notes... Like, so Colin Farrell basically joins a frat called the CIA. Like, there, a lot of the, a, a lot of the, like, stuff he has to go through is like what you might go through if you were pledging a frat. Um, and so it does kind of send that up. But, uh, you know, I, I, so I also, for my own bias, I just finished a book called Legacy of Ashes, which is the history of the CIA, which if you ever want to get really mad about the CIA from the very conception of it to now, and if you ever want to be disabused of the notion that anything we see in the movies um, related to the CIA other than like basically Argo, which was sort of a true to life story. Um, just go ahead and spend 600 pages on that. But um, yeah, there is sort of a duality of like making the CIA seem really cool. Um, and then, but the, then Pacino's character um, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, being very critical of the CIA, I guess. Yeah. And and that's like that's a great point too, right? And so that I think because the movie the turns the movie takes, we can like maybe look at the script a little more skeptically. As I mean, how that hammy introduction to the CIA when they finally uh, get to the farm, which is yeah. this place, which I think uh, the, is essentially the frat house, as you're saying, which is such a great description where all the hazing goes on. <laughs> Pacino gives this long speech about what it means to be in the CIA is essentially. Uh, a question of honor because you're not there for the money, the sex or the fame. You're there because you believe in good and evil and right and wrong. It's the most like ham fisted understanding of the world about drawing a line in the sand. Again, a kind of Bush. Now we can think of it as a Bush callback of like you're either with us or against us. Right. Yeah, it does. It, I mean, well, when I, when I was first going through those initial scenes when you know, they're training at the farm and getting ready and trying to make it to the CIA, I took a note that says, is this explicitly CIA propaganda or just lazy as fuck? Because <laughs> I do think that those, you can, you can retroactively apply a little more meaning to it when you see where the movie ultimately goes. Because it does, you know, obviously the man saying that turns out to not be on board at all. So I guess there's some relevance there. And I guess in the context it came out, I don't know if it was being, you know, uh, too, maybe it was, it was, I, it's hard for me to tell if it was being ham-fisted because 
that's just what the movie was supposed to be if it was being that because they were sort of already like quietly sending up like how absurd it is to say that you know how there's all these you know preppy uh, you know what mostly white people applying to be part of it and they're selling it as the best thing in the world and i don't know if that meant it was meant to be quietly some sort of subversive or if it just was you know we're making a cia movie let's be rah-rah cia as much as we possibly can Hmm. It seems like the tongue is a little bit in the cheek. Uh, there's this guy who shows up later on, right, who keeps talking about how working for the agency gets you all of the Republican girls. <laughs> and it's this, like, such eye-rolly moment that they, they hammer home twice. And maybe it's because maybe the script is just that bad. But I, I take that as being, uh, yeah, tongue firmly in cheek there about what's going on. I mean, it's definitely so. The script is we we, we reiterate sort of the script is terrible. And <laughs> one thing I think this movie does super well, which makes me very happy. And there's, I, I think all these Alimentor movies do this really well. And I never really put it together until I saw this. Uh, they make use of Al Pacino's skill at telling like sort of aside anecdotes. Yeah. Like Al Pacino is so good at pulling someone aside and saying, "I knew a girl once." And she and I, you know, we were going at it pretty good. Like, he goes in some, whether it's, and, and this, it's either metaphorical or it's, in this case, it's extremely literal, but he tells a story that basically seduces the, his, you know, surrogate son, as you noted, onto the team, into the fold, part of the gang. Like, and Al just has such a skill at saying, at like, acting, making the acting seem like it's a little intimate conversation between him and the other person in the scene. And I think there's at least two scenes in this movie where Al grabs, Colin Farrell says, hey, come here, I got a story to tell you. And tells him a little story and then sort of wraps it up. And they make, it just, I, I think you made a good point, Andrew. This does a great, they, they use Al sparingly in the beginning and make him less crazy so that when he does get sort of a little, gets to go a little nuts at the end, it feels way more warranted and, and not real is not the right word, but it feels more justified. And it feels like that's, that's when he actually might be going crazy. And, and before that, he's, you know, he's relatively understated and, and just sort of going with emotions. And I think that's really, that is a good use of Al for this era. That's not really what they were doing in 2003, you know, post Son of a Woman even. Yeah, it's it's like a, well, I wrote down, like, most of the performance is actually very restrained for Pacino, especially in the context of, like, his post-2000 career. Um, but because of what happens at the end, because he's actually a character that's kind of bottling up all of this sort of resentment that he has, plus all of the, like, sort of scheming that he has to do, um... Because of that, his like the the Al the Al explosion at the end actually like makes a ton of sense. <laughs> like it, it it makes sense for him in that with the guns pointed at him for him to go absolutely nuts, you know. So it, it like it 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 doesn't feel um, like he's just this caricature. Which we, we like we it, interestingly for us, I think going back through all of like even back to the eighties and somewhat to this probably not quite to the seventies, but like. Definitely, like, when we started with Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Like, he has that, like, turn it up to 11 notch, you know? And he's always had that. It's just, like, over time, it feels like it's just come out more and more. And as he's ha almost had, like, less and less material to work with or chosen for our roles and that sort of thing. But, like, here it makes sense. Yeah, it's all... Uh, the thing that I find so great about his performance is, as you sort of pointed out, Steve, I think, was these little moments that he gets. So, like... Right. And, and he, uh, to, to talk about what you're saying, Andrew, he knows when to notch it up just perfectly uh, in that movie when uh, 
he realizes that his wife is cheating on him and he's talking to uh, the man she's seeing and he's saying, you know, you can have sex with my wife. You can, you can, yeah, Yeah, exactly. You can, you can lounge around in my post modern dead tech bullshit house, but you cannot watch my fucking TV. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And this, he, he gets to do, or I guess he does so much with so little in certain moments. So when he's talking about Cat's Cradle and Kurt Vonnegut, that's great. When he when he's talking about being old and how <laughs> he says, like, I don't sleep, I gotta piss like a racehorse every two hours. <laughs> right? It's these little just injections that he puts in there from and part of it's the script, but it's how he knows how to dial in the exact emotion necessary for that moment, uh, all the way leading up to this kind of explosive conclusion, which which ends with a Pacino speech and then him doing a callback which is uh you gotta admit i'm a pretty uh scary judge of character or talent yeah right yeah, yeah. so what were some of those moments for you guys you know like i there's there's such a this movie is such an odd collection of episodes for me i brought this up before we started recording was the conversation in the Thai restaurant when he's like eating crabs which is just hilarious all by itself that they're like both eating crabs at a Thai restaurant in I suppose suburban Virginia, Northern Virginia. Um, and he's like having this sort of quiet conversation. I don't even remember what they're saying, but it, it's the guy who ultimately will like, you know, basically torture, uh, Colin Farrell's character in the, in the like holding cell to try and break him. And he like kind of points him out, um, as they're having, having dinner. And I think it's the first scene after he actually recruits him to the CIA where he, he agrees to sort of like have that, mentor mentee conversation with Colin Farrell after kind of ignoring him for a stretch. Um, mm-hmm. But also Thai crabs was just hilarious. So I don't, <laughs> like you can put that guy in any setting and you'll kind of just watch and, and, um, and, and you, you can't take your eyes off, off of it. Sometimes that's, sometimes that's not the best thing. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's engrossing for me. That was the one that stuck out. So. Yeah, Nick, I think my, mine is more of a broader observation of, and you guys sort of touched on this before. I, I think we, I don't know if you've been able to pinpoint this in your more academic review of Al. I don't think we've ever really determined, you know, post sen of a woman, you know, th- though he has hits and misses after then, why he goes so big sometimes. Like, is he going big because he senses it's necessary? Is he going big because the script demands it is he going big because the director tells him to is he going big because he takes ends up making bad choices and he feels sort of an obligation to fill these gaps or these holes and he knows that going big you know pays the bills i really wonder what the the catalyst is within al pacino or, or even outside factors that cause him to make these because as we noted in this one he, he uses it very appropriately and i wonder if that's director roger donaldson or the script that sort of asks him to to hold it in until it's appropriate or whether that's a concentrated choice like I really don't know. If I had to guess, given that it's Al Pacino and he's one of the a living legend, I would guess he sort of decides when he's gonna turn it up to eleven or not. But I'm I'm curious if you have any sense of why or when he might do that. If you sense patterns or anything that would really shed light on what Al might be thinking in those moments. Oh, that's a, that's a, a good question. So I mean, one of the things that I I write about in the in the piece on the Voice is that for for an actor who spent so long playing characters that were quietly waging these battles internally. We can think of Michael Corleone or, or Frank Serpico or uh, any number of roles in Dog Day Afternoon, 
uh, or Scarecrow, a, a great underseen movie. It, it made sense that after spending 20, 20 to 30 years playing characters who just had to keep it on the inside, that it had nowhere to go but bubble out. Now, I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a shame to me that Scent of a Woman is the movie that got Al Pacino his Oscar because that movie is a hard watch. It's a slog. <laughs> it's it's a gross movie, and it's the movie that you know now. Whenever Pacino does go big, and sometimes he does, and more often than not he does, he he's labeled though as with the kind of hoo ha, right? You, you you're almost guaranteed to read uh, some review of any Pacino film. We'll see when the Paterno movie comes out this weekend. Uh, a reference to the hoo-ha. Uh, but I know that he loves uh, rehearsal and improvisation a little bit. So I know he's talked about how, you know, the best stuff comes after you've rehearsed for for hours and days, and then that's where the magic sort of happens. Uh, and as I understand it, um, he prefers directors who let him kind of go he wants some direction but he doesn't want yeah i'd say he wants some direction and he likes to try different things and then he's, t- he's talked about in interviews how he he likes if a director says no that doesn't work right but he wants the director to at least let him explore these kind of just expansive uh performances it, it's it's such an interesting discussion and i feel like because we Naturally, this is like doing an Al Pacino podcast. The the most obvious comparison point is Robert De Niro, um, mm-hmm. and so we talk about this all the time. But like that that post, like I think the the sort of existential debate we have when we compare those two, and you can't help it because of Godfather Two and Heat and all that stuff, and they're you know similar ages is because um, both of them we we kind of agree have fallen into a pretty severe rut in the last roughly around the same time in terms of like, you know, we just don't care about seeing their new stuff by and large anymore. Um, or we don't get excited for it. Um, but it's like Pacino, at least it feels like he cares. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Like, whereas De Niro, it just like you watch some of the stuff, he, a lot of the stuff he puts out and it just feels like he's either, well, he's just mailing in for the paycheck. And, and so then it just becomes a matter of, you know, how, how much, the the movie the director the whoever can sort of get something that but it's always like it's always touching some part of De Niro we know like I mean I'm thinking of like American Hustle I think he, he was like pretty good in that but it wasn't like any new De Niro it was just like a decently made movie uh, that that sort of had him in it where like Pacino the more and more we go through this the more Pacino is like more interesting and seems like he cares just don't know if it's always guided in the best direction at this point and i i'm glad you brought up paterno i'm really curious to see that especially given our understated versus hoo-ha conversation because joe paterno the real man was definitely an understated person (laughs) yeah if al if al goes full al in that movie something has probably gone horribly wrong barry seinfeld needs to get talked to at that point yeah yeah Mm -hmm. anyway Mm -hmm. that's my i don't know i i feel like i bring up de niro every episode which is not the point but it's impossible to not compare the two of them um given given the their sort of shared icon, icon status. So. Mm. And there was, I mean, I think we're starting to see, we're starting to see a, a growth or, or, or a divergence for both of them. I know Pacino had some financial issues yeah. in their early 2010s, which is what he's attributed to, to a series of, of not so hot movies like 88 minutes 
uh, in which a, a character shares my last name, uh, <laughs> and, and, or Righteous Kill, which features both of them. And oh, boy, that's a hard movie to watch. We should have done uh, Righteous Kill, in my opinion. Righteous no, Kill is no. the, it might be the worst of all. No. Danny Collins, and we watched that one. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Danny Collins is great. I'll defend Danny Collins. That's I, I think that's too. the term. Yeah, let's go back and re-record Danny Collins. <laughs> no, no. Scrub, scrub Tom from existence. <laughs> so, so let's talk though about. I mean, so in this movie, you also have this great, uh, great pairing, right? Al Pacino's done this mentor thing a lot. You know, Devil's Advocates with Keanu Reeves, who at that point had a, 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 a at least a decade-long career. Incentive of a Woman, it's with Chris O'Donnell, who's entirely milk toast. In Donnie Brasco, it's with Johnny Depp, who. Uh, ha- kind of has, has the privilege of playing a really interesting character at, for the time as uh, as someone who's a snitch and, and also a kind of regarded gangster. Um, and, and here we have Colin Farrell, kind of at the start of his career, just after Minority yeah. Report. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm a I'm a lover of Colin Farrell, and um, uh, but I, I that I came to that late. Um, I didn't think much of him because uh, I saw him in Minority Report. I think he was in some other garbage and then it was right around like when in bruges came out and then i think he was in the one that to me connected and i was like oh this guy can actually act was um crazy heart where he plays the country singer um like he irish guy pulls off a country western singer and it was pretty good um yeah i mean he like this is actually i i had never i never saw the recruit like at that time when i kind of wrote off colin farrell and so um I think he's really good, especially in that mentor role. Like he's definitely got, he's definitely got more in his acting toolbox than, um, than Keanu Reeves and, uh, and, uh, whoever else he sort of, sort of listed there. So I, 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 I adored in this, this role. I also wondered, uh, when deep V's were invented because he seemed to have his shirt unbuttoned quite a bit, um, <laughs> like, and uncomfortably low. I, I like, mean, oh. Roger Donaldson knows where the money's made, right? He's yeah, not trying. He's, he knows Colin Farrell's a hunk. Get that shirt as oh, unbuttoned as much as possible. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> this is a weird Colin Farrell tie. I'm looking at his filmography right now and he had come off Tigerland, which was, I know, got a little buzz around him. And then he did Minority Report, which I think he's great in. And Phone Booth, which I think is, for a Joel Schumacher sort of dumb movie, I remember enjoying it a lot when I was younger. And then he sort of fell into, uh, you know, big big movie hell. He did Daredevil, he did this, he did SWAT, he did Alexander. Like, he oh made God, a lot Alexander's of... Alexander's so bad. Like, I mean, logical choices, looking back, like, he's the star of an Oliver Stone big-budget movie. Why not do that? And SWAT, I actually think SWAT's pretty great, too. But... But still curious choices and, and certainly, you know, very different than what he would end up being sort of now, where though he still makes some big things here and there, he's certainly beloved for the smaller things. And, but I will say of all the ones I just named, even though again, I sort of like SWAT, the recruit uses him really, really well. Like it doesn't, it doesn't ask him to be sort of that, overbearing lead you know it doesn't yeah. ask him to be hunky necessarily like you like i think i forget which one of you said this but everyone is pretty restrained for the first you know hour and a half yeah. and that suits Farrell really well i think we come to realize later on when we see him actually act that that is um, colin farrell's mode though in bruges would maybe disagree but i do like the understated Farrell, and i think it was a good use of him as like a leading man and he's not super cool right i mean yeah. he's oh. Which, like, in Bruges, he's so clever and awesome. In Miami Vice, he's, I mean, he's, like, hot. He's, like, a cool guy <laughs> that you'd want to emulate or whatever, right? And in this movie, he's the dude, to go back to your comparison, Andrew, he's the guy who 
is reluctant to join the frat, but kind of feels like he has to, even though he thinks the whole thing is, it, it's sort of like, oh, well, my, I want to learn about my dad. Yeah. And so the way that I learn about my dad is by going through this stuff. Not that I have like, I don't, he's not like a necessarily a particularly patriotic character. Yeah. Also, it's funny that someone calls him Crockett or Tubbs, and then he later is in Miami Vice. Yeah. That was, uh, that was hey, interesting. I think about yeah. that. That's great. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, let's talk. Let's do a little. Let's have a quick little wrap up here by talking about the last 18 minutes. I'm, I put <laughs> my notes. The last 18 minutes are Al's time because that really, you know, Al gets to turn it up to 11 as he loves to do. He puts his head through a plate glass window, which is really unnecessary. Oh, yeah. He's trying to reinforce. You know, he got in a fight with Colin Farrell as is going to be his excuse. He doesn't have to smash his head through a window. He can just hit himself with, you know, a small rock or something like that. Or or cut himself with, like, a tiny little razor blade. Like, no one needs to smash a head through a window. <laughs> but there's just so much good Al in the last 18 minutes. And I really think that it – and I think you guys put it into words so well here, which which I didn't really do when I was watching it. It makes the other stuff before it that much better because it just makes sense. Like, he has all these great lines where he's yelling, Hand in the cookie jar! <laughs> and he's – asks him how much you know he's making for this and i swear this is an ad-lib line from al because i feel like there's no reason to go into this detail but he goes three million that's cash this is a mocha <laughs> makes no sense why i feel like he's supposed to be vague like, the movie does not make it very clear why uh walter burke is betraying america beyond his own internal feelings so i don't see any reason why they would apply an actual number to the money he's getting paid in the script, you know? I feel like that's just Al off the cuff just deciding to say something weird. And I don't know, all those things, just as Andrew is probably super unsurprised to hear, made me super happy. I, I watched it last night, went to bed with a big smile on my face because the last, those last couple minutes were just really, really, really good stuff. Um, I, well, I just have one comment, which is that we've been doing this podcast so long and our Al Pacino impressions are still terrible. Um, uh, and then the only other thing I was going to say is, yeah, it's like the Magic Johnson winning time thing. Like, this was winning time. It was Al's time to, you know, take the ball off the court. Um, I don't have anything to add. You guys talk about the end. It was, it was great. Uh, I watched it with my father-in-law. They were in town for Easter and he like sat down on the couch, not knowing what to expect, not really understanding why I'm watching a 2003 Al Pacino movie on a Sunday <laughs> night. And he sat there the entire time. And, and the end of the movie was, you know, was great. So I, I don't, I don't have much to add there other than, yeah, it was, it was terrific. It's, it's what he does with these things. I wish I'd like to see the original script because some of these lines are so great. I mean, there's ones that, that are definitely in the script where he's talking to, to James Clayton, which is Colin Farrell's character. And he's saying, you know, we talk about the, the $3 million and these numbers that get thrown out. And he, he just has the, he says to James, don't you appreciate the, don't you appreciate the complexity of the thing? I mean, come on, man. I'm working without a net here before going on to say he's trying to get the computer from that has the, the information that would incriminate him. Uh, and, and Colin Farrell's asking him, <laughs> he's asking him questions. And Pacino, this is just a brilliant, it's a, it's a funny line, but Pacino's delivery is so, you know, I hesitate to use the word, but transcendent here when he says, uh, he, uh, oh, how, why, when? You're like a bunch of baby birds with your beaks open, right? <laughs> yeah. He's just, he's just tired. It's like it's it's Pacino, the character, and Pacino, the actor, they're just tired of the what he sees as the bullshit from this new generation who who can't see the work that he's done, what he's been put in. 
what he's put into it. Again, he feels obsolete. Do you think it's weird? I, I sort of touched on this. I found it sort of odd, maybe because I'm so used to this in other movies of this sort, that there's no explanation to, for whom he's working for or for really for why he's doing it beyond, again, those sort of larger philosophical reasons. I, I Maybe I'm just used to an explanation, but I thought it was sort of weird that he just... like I, I was I didn't really get the whole plan in the first place like he was stealing the software i guess but like i don't know i feel and obviously that's secondary you're not really supposed to worry about that too much but is that just me too used to spy thrillers with overly complicated you know plots and resolutions yes you think it's just yes like this is not this is not this is not tinker taylor soldier spy it's <laughs> sure. it's not and i don't want that from this movie personally i'm just speaking there i don't need the backstory i think it's better without it i wish more movies would edit themselves down like this and not and not 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 feel the need to give us a backstory all the time i mean it is refreshing though because like you said it is post 9 11 and you almost were waiting for him to say he's working for al-qaeda or something and then he doesn't say it and i guess that, that it must be the last it really must be the last 15 years of movies that trumpets very similar storylines for their villains or for, especially for their surprise villains because it was nice to have him just doesn't matter it's just al you know he, he's he's pissed off he wants his payday you know yeah, seventy-five uh, grand a year doesn't pay the bills or pays most. Yeah, he's a GS fifteen. He doesn't get that much money. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like Colin Farrell, we too cannot appreciate the complexity of the thing <laughs> that, that Westerbuck is doing. I don't know a better note to end on than that, Steve. Uh, but we got to do our ratings, of course. Um, we do, yes. Nick, you can be a part of this as well. We do, and this is a very nebulous rating system, so you can define it however you like. But if you're going to do it as Michael, Fredo, or Sonny Corleone, and that's how we normally... I'm going to say this is a... We'll say Sonny, because for the last 18 minutes have the passion of an angry James Caan, and they sort of make up for the slower burn of the first 90. I definitely... I, I was thought I was going to hate it. I remember when, Nick, when you recommended it or said we should watch it, I certainly scoffed inwardly and outwardly because I hadn't seen it in 15 years and thought it was bad. It was a little bit better than I remember. I got through it. Uh, it, it weirdly works for what it's going for. It's not great, but it has its moments. It's a slam dunk Michael for me, and I think this is only the second movie where I've ranked the performance oh higher God. than you. What is um, going on here? After Scarface, I think Scarface was the other one that I, I think... Like, in both cases, I just think, like, Pacino is a great actor, but, like, without him in this movie, the movie like crumbles to ash in your fingers like it just <laughs> there is nothing here without pacino um and uh and that doesn't mean it's his greatest role but like you know that's a that's a michael corleone performance if ever there was one for me so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go with exactly what andrew said here too you know i i am no not afraid to give fredo's out to to <laughs> mr pacino but this is a movie that it, if there is no al pacino this this is a non-movie. This is a, it's just completely boring, you know, throw it in, direct to DVD, direct to video, whatever. Um, and I can't think of too many other movies where Pacino elevates everything else so, so high, uh, brings it all up, uh, that he's been in. Cause usually he's either got a, a much stronger script or, or more interesting, you know, uh, cinematography or shooting or or the movie's just atrocious <laughs> and, and here he I, I you know every time i just can't turn it off i got i've been on youtube and i watched that 
stupid recruiting scene where he get where he's circling <laughs> the CIA on the newspaper, and I go, <laughs> "Dang, this is he, he he somehow is able to tap into this character, which is such just a sketchy outline, and 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 fully fill him out and flesh him out." As a fascinating, not necessarily realistic person, but as a totally intriguing and fascinating character. Yeah, that's really well put, Nick. I think it's really hard to argue with that, especially when so eloquently stated. It really is as paint by numbers as it gets, sans Al. And it's, it's there's not many examples, as you note, especially post 2003, of Al necessarily doing what you described, which is a shame. But it is it is nice to you know were, were people to ask for a post you know, Son of a Woman movie that is good Pacino, this would be a nice sleeper. Like, it would be, it would surprise people, and they probably would react the same way I did. Especially, if, for me, a self-professed Al fan who, who you know, got on my little soapbox, my internal soapbox, and was scoffing at your suggestion. It was nice to be proven wrong in that regard. <laughs> it was nice to go, wow, okay, maybe I don't know Mr. Pacino as well as I should, because I would never in a million years have recommended this for those reasons. But as we describe it here, it's it's hard to argue with. Uh, Steve, I think you're the new Tom. <laughs> I what did have I feel done? Like when we started, I did feel like I'm going to be the one who hated this more than everyone else. And I think I sort of am, obviously, because I didn't give it a Michael, and I think that's insane, by the way. But I still, you know, I, I don't disagree with your points. I just think it's kind of a really bad movie anyway. I'm just happy that Al is there to, to give it the little bit of oomph it needs to make it, to make it thoroughly watchable. Definitely worth the uh, three or four dollars on Amazon. Yeah, yeah I, I bought the SD version. I could not spring for the <laughs> HD version. I didn't feel like Roger Donaldson and who's the cinematographer, Stuart Dryberg. They didn't deserve my extra dollar for the HD version, but that's okay. That's that, that's the joy of watching fifteen-year-old Pacino movies. Believe you can watch anything in SD at this point, but okay. <laughs> I mean, it looks okay on a big TV, and it's the recruit. Come on, I mean, we're not we're not we're not you know talking about a legendary you know filming experience here it's not the revenant or something yeah it is not the revenant. it's better <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, all right nick let's let's wrap up here do you have any final thoughts on mr pacino before we go uh, i'm just uh i'm really excited to see where he goes from from here on out you know the last few movies he's done he's really embraced his old age and and has kind of gone back in history and played these roles in biographical films as phil Spector, jack kevorkian uh, et cetera. And we're going to see that with Paterno. So I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. And, you know, just, uh, thank God we have a, we have another Pacino movie. It's not over yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I can say this will come out before Paterno comes out, but I am convening an emergency Pacino podcast recording with Andrew and Tom as soon as possible post Paterno. So you'll be hearing this pre Paterno. Keep reloading your feeds because in the days to come, we will be dropping a very hot Paterno episode of Justice for Al on everyone. So. This is the true story about Paterno, the movie. I, so Tom has been in, uh, Paris with his girlfriend or France and like I've been following him on Instagram and he's having an amazing time and I uh, I just sent him an email with the subject line Paterno and I said when do you get back I have something special waiting for you so uh so I'm looking forward to Paterno at some point we have to let Tom off the hook but maybe we found someone someone even even better to to have on uh on occasion and keep us keep us plowing through Al's Al's extensive filmography yeah, Nick, you have an official invitation from the podcast. Return whenever yeah. your heart desires. So just let us know. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. 
<laughs> and thanks everyone for listening. Like I said, keep an eye out for the Paterno episode. I've been walking around Los Angeles taking pictures of Paterno billboards, <laughs> text messaging them to Andrew and Tom and saying, get hype and stuff like that. And they do not respond, but I know they are getting hype in their hearts. So that's really what matters. <laughs> really want to get hyped about the movie about, I don't know. It's going to be a bit of a downer. I have a feeling. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Andrew, as always, for coming on. Thank you, Nick, for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. And thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, we are one nation under Pacino with liberty and justice for Al. (laughs) 